Hi, I'm Megan Davis, the founder and lead storyteller of Spend Love and Lamb. I'm a narrative consultant. I help people and businesses tell and find the right stories to change our world. In this podcast, I talk to dreamers. I talk to rebels. I talk to people who are changing our thinking. And I invite you to go on this journey with us. Join us, won't you? Hello, I'm Peter Evans. I'm the artistic director of Bell Shakespeare. I'm a theatre director and have been for 25 years. Great. And so that's uh, that's pretty much a dream job, isn't it? What you, <laughs> what you do? Well, it, it is now. It yeah. is now. But like most people who work in the arts, the first kind of 10, 15 years is pretty tough. It's not, isn't it? It's a pretty tough business. But I loved it, and the. I suppose the point about it is that it's it's a vocation. It's more than a job. It's sort of who I am. I, I find um, I mean people often say you shouldn't, you know, your job shouldn't shouldn't be so connected to your identity. But if you work in the arts and if this is what you do, you, it is kind of your identity. When I'm doing it, I think I'm at, I'm my best self in a way. And so uh, I recognised that when I was nineteen. Mm. And uh, apart from a brief a brief break when I threw it all away for a year, um, I've been doing it ever since. So it's more than twenty five years now. It's now nearly twenty eight years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first experience learn about become exposed to Shakespeare? So I was I was lucky. So I, I grew up in in Christchurch, New Zealand, and the theatre there was pretty traditional. And although they did Shakespeare, my early memories of seeing it uh, are not inspiring ones. Uh, I saw other plays there that I do remember when I was very young that I don't remember being inspired by the Shakespeare. But I was very lucky is that I had a, a very inspiring English teacher. Mm. I was 15, I think, who was very good at teaching Shakespeare. He was very good at teaching poetry. Um, he was passionate about about writing, and he was good at it. But the, the reason he was good at it is he he he, he focused on very small pieces. So the very first class we did on Shakespeare, he only looked at about 10 lines of Shakespeare, as opposed to a more traditional way of teaching Shakespeare, certainly in my generation, although I think it probably still goes on, because mm. everyone in the class reads the whole play. Mm. And people get caught up with the plot. Which is actually not the way to turn people onto Shakespeare. To turn people is actually to look, to look at the details. I think to look at the details and to look at the characters because the plots are actually quite can be quite difficult to describe, and you can find yourself going down a rabbit warren and find yourself saying, "Oh, this is hard," when mm-hmm. in fact, looking looking in detail and talking about character, I think really turns people on to to what it is and gets them investigating more. I, I suppose what he was good at is that he he, he inspired curiosity. Mm. And I think that's the best kind of teaching is if he get someone can make you curious about something, then then you do the work as opposed to um, laying it out like a chore, I guess. <laughs> yeah. When I spoke to to John, John Bell yesterday, he actually said that curiosity is the cornerstone of all great art. Yeah, well put. I think it is. 
thing. It absolutely is. I, I, I suppose one could argue though it's probably the cornerstone of everything. Like I'm pretty sure the I'm pretty sure the scientists would say the same, and and your innovators and um, people in business. I think if you're not curious. Yeah, I don't want to know you if you're not curious. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a cornerstone to having a great life, an amazing life. I totally agree. Yeah. I didn't know, I didn't realize you could be a theater director when I, where I grew up. It, did, it didn't feel like an option to me. I mean, it's mm. one of the reasons I'm very passionate about the company that I work for and um, and and an agreement with all John's philosophies and forming the company is that education is a massive part, sort of half the business. Mm. So getting to schools and getting into communities and working with teachers is a big part of what we do. And partly that's because I think I felt slightly geographically disadvantaged being in a small city in, in, in New Zealand. Um, mm. And it wasn't really until I got to Auckland that I thought, well, maybe this could be a thing, directing plays. And, and I was young enough and um, bulletproof enough to think that I could take on Shakespeare, which is a really good place to be before you know what you don't know just get into it and um and enjoy yeah. it and so i was very lucky yeah so the world opened up yeah. do you have a shakespeare introductory story so mine was stratford shakespeare festival in canada so yeah. i grew up in michigan and michigan is on the border with canada yeah. and yeah. we yes, got on a yes, bus lucky. yeah yeah and you know so i saw the best of the world all come to this festival to and it's play after play after play. And I was watching, I think it was As You Like It. And I have a very vivid memory of watching the actors and thinking, I have lived some of this already as a 15-year-old. Wow. <laughs> you know, cool. because you could identify with the confusion of falling in love. <laughs> uh, and especially as a 15-year-old, like that's super heightened. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's so great. That's so interesting. I mean, I do think, I think particularly plays like that, particularly for young women, it's really interesting because all the young women in Shakespeare are much smarter than the young men and they're all mm. more mature, which I think most of us, you know, experience that, that, that young women tend to be um, emotionally, you know, de de developmentally a, a year or two older. Yeah. Shakespeare seems to identify that really early and on all the comedies particularly, the young women kind of have to teach the young men what it is. They have to kind of get them to grow up a bit so that they can understand love. And, and yeah. I think it's really great when you point that out, and particularly the young women coming into Shakespeare, because there's not as many characters, obviously, not as many female characters. Yeah. It's the, uh, easy for, for young women to think, oh, maybe Shakespeare's not for me. But in fact, he's uh, um, particularly in those comedies, it's... Um, I think he's right on the money and, and really understands um, what it is to be young. He seems to be really interested in young people. Yeah, I think that that's a good segue into talking about the timeless qualities of, of Shakespeare. And my feeling about Shakespeare is that he is so timeless because he so empathetically portrays his characters. So he's able to so deeply connect with the character's point of view and put it across so fully that it's a, it's an entire person where we see the good, the bad, the beauty, the hatred. We see all of them and we're able to connect with the different levels within that individual. Mm -hmm. And it's his use of empathy that allows that to, to happen. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a number of reasons why the work is timeless. And, and one of them is that it, they're full of questions. They're not, they're not about answers. 
they're often full of ambiguity. So each generation can find themselves in it because he's not, he doesn't lock things down. He doesn't kind of seal them up. Mm. And I often can talk about, you know, dramaturgically, we live in such a such a sort of film age where logic is is, is so important to us, mm. and, a, and a sense of you know A plus B must equal C. Um, whereas the way Shakespeare puts the plays together is, is much more complex and much more open-ended. Um, so you can find yourself in the plots or in the stories. Now, clearly, he's interested in what makes us tick. And so what he does is he, I think you're right about empathy, but it's about embracing contradictions. Mm. The characters are full of contradictions, which we are too. Mm. So, so uh, when an actor, I'm, uh, I encourage the actors when they approach the character is you're not actually looking for the consistency. You're looking for what are they in this scene? What are they in this scene? And in a way the audience makes them consistent because they're looking at you and humans are kind of narrative machines. We're meaning machines. Is that is that for our own um, kind of um, emotional stability, we have to, <laughs> to believe that that people are consistent. Yeah, we're not. We're really not. And when Shakespeare sort of identifies that, he identifies that that we can be this in this situation, or we can be this in front of this person, and, and he allows that to happen. I think you're connecting that to a sense of empathy. I, th- I think it is also to do with Shakespeare's curiosity about us mm. and that and that good people aren't good all the time and bad people aren't bad all the time. He's not interested in that. He's interested in, in the kind of blurry, grey areas, which means that I think you can find yourself in various bits of the characters, but also that it doesn't. it's not about time. It doesn't matter that he was writing in the end of the 16th century, it's 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 a, it's about a, a kind of universal humanity, and I, and I think it you know clearly also crosses cultural boundaries as well because the plays are, are performed and interpreted all over the world, and people from all cultures, all ages, seem to be able to find themselves in it. And I think that there's, there's something universal in the in the way that he explores humanity. Mm. If you were thinking about curiosity and and empathy as a process and somebody was saying okay we have a problem to solve i have a big problem and i have to put forward this problem and say i can find a solution it's going to cost x amount of money and i have to get buy-in i have to get people to believe that i can solve this problem if we were going to present that how important is this empathetic connection with not just the people we're solving the problems for, but with the people that we need to join us. So it's, you know, it's that visioning and that, that inspiration piece. What you're describing is, is actually like putting on a play. Right. Creating a production when you play is that. It's like, yeah. here's a big problem. Here's a big problem. Here's a big play. It's really complex. I've got to get a whole group of people. Got people to, I've got to get people to put money into it. I've got to get a whole group of artists together and we've got to create some kind of world in order to present this to an audience. Like mm. the, 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 the metaphor and the reality of putting on a play, I think is sort of interesting for some of the stuff that you're interested in, you're talking about. And you're right about empathy and curiosity because for me it's about the storytelling. It's about... Mm. Um, um, not telling the story of the play necessarily, although you could do that, but it's about telling the story of the process of 
putting on the plate. The steps. It's, uh, yeah, it's selling. It's selling the journey. Like, yeah. what is the? What are, Why should I be involved in 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 your project to put on this play? Why should I be? You know, a lot of my job is about talking to people, saying, "I want to do this and this and this. I want to do these plays, and I want to do it in this manner and this part of Australia, or or in this kind of venue." Come with me on the journey because we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and you get to see this thing getting made, or you get to see the kind of. And that feels to me more and more. I've really noticed that with our audience, and certainly with people who who are investing in the company, people are really want to see behind the curtain. They want to mm. see how the sausages are made. They want to see what that process is because they're curious. Mm. But the way, the, the way in which, you know, in my particular job we work is quite different to how they work or they might find huge similarities in the way it is because so much of it is about the imagination, but it's still very practical. We've still got to go through some pretty serious steps in order yeah. to make something. Well we're making is interesting and it probably does you were talking maybe before we started about design thinking and i find that really i only know a little bit about it but i find it interesting because from what i understand it's about working with a problem that's constantly changing like it's shifting which is also what a play does because the thing we make is not tangible the thing we make exists in time and space That's the def- the definition of this art form is 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 around time and and space. It's about people spending time in three dimensions with other people who are pretending yeah. to be other people. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like yeah. like it's super weird. But yeah, it's, be, it's, it seems to be super um, innate innate to us. Yeah, that this idea of standing up in front and pretending pretending to be something else or somebody else and and convey some experience is is clearly innate to what it is to be human. And, and again, maybe that's to do with the meaning machine, mm. or the narrative machine, to the way of understanding our experience in some way. Mm. But also, it comes back to empathy. Yeah. So, so particularly when we talk about the tragedies, mm. the experience of the tragedies is about catharsis. You know, and it's central to empathy is that we watch something play out, a kind of fantasy in a way that we would never do. Mm. You know, mm. Often we're watching these villains and we're watching somebody who the only connection is that they're ambitious and I'm ambitious, but what they're willing to do for their ambition is kill people. <laughs> right, know? yeah. We watch that go out uh, ongoing and we see the sort of consequences of that. So if we can talk specifically, if we think about Macbeth for a moment, mm. one of the really interesting things about that is that he's not a sociopath. He's actually he's actually got the best imagination in Shakespeare and mm. he's able to predict what his mind will do if he commits murder. That he, he, he is terrified that his mind is going to unravel. And it does. Mm. And it does, and and his language changes, and everything um, comes apart. It seems his relationship is—he stops talking to his wife, and everything. And it's a—it's an incredibly cathartic experience for us to go, yeah, I would be worried about that. And then we yeah. see the fantasy played out for him. It's not a fantasy, and then we watch this thing completely fall apart. So, at a personal level, we're connected to it. The, mm-hmm. the catharsis, but also as a society, we see the society fractured by this this act, by this by this murder, and then 
where we see some sense of the of the society healing itself at some, uh, in the end. Mm. The, the, the journey of the tragedy is a is about and it's about the individual, but they're also always about the society as well. And I think that's really important, you know, for making a link between design thinking and empathy and the act of creating a play in a world. We're in a moment where we're inflicted by the dominant narrative of the the hero's journey, which I'm increasingly finding problematic because no one's a hero, truly. And it also celebrates the individual way too much. And as you say, society must heal itself. A person cannot save society. A person is, they're influencing but yeah. they cannot save, and we must come together to solve big problems. So the, the art form that I work in is completely collaborative. Now, mm. it's not democratic. It's difficult to achieve something. There's, there's very clear hierarchies and there's, and there's clear order in which decisions get made, but the mm. best decisions are made with buy-in from as many people as possible. So I sometimes mm. describe my job as a, as a kind of sieve. So what I'm trying to do is get as many people to contribute as many ideas as possible, and then it, it goes through it goes through me as a sort of sieve to make a yeah. series of choices. And hopefully we all agree on those choices as it comes together. And, and most of the time it does. Like if, you, if you've set up the right environment, then it does. So I agree with you in terms of the way the process works and in terms of achieving something harmonious and something that holds together and something that has integrity mm. and, and is going to speak to the widest possible audience. But also the, the plays do exactly the same thing. So, so if, we, if we think just in a binary way for a moment, what I was saying about the tragedies is that they are about the individual and exactly what you're saying. We're about the individual who thinks that they're the most important thing in the society or that their needs are the most important thing in the society or the, the sense of power that they may have. Whereas the comedies are about in, inclusion. The comedies tend to be about multiple characters and they they require some sort of journey. So a lot of the comedies go from the city to the forest, back to the city, or the city to the to to the forest of Arden or, or to the woods or or there's some sort of liminal space. And in that space, people lose themselves in order to find themselves. Mm. And they can return to the to the society. Mm. Like clever, Cleverly, almost all the comedies, there's one person who decides to opt out. Even in the comedies, there's somebody who's left on the outside or chooses to be left on the outside because they don't want to play. And so at the end of the comedies, there's slight uneasiness. And again, I think this is Shakespeare's genius, is that is that even in these in these sort of fantasy settings, there is a sense that that we can connect to that. We understand that. We understand the community is never perfect. And just because there's multiple weddings at the end, the thing is not, (laughs) he's not not naive. Even when Shakespeare's at his most optimistic, he's not naive. He still represents that the society is constantly moving and people are in and people are out and and that's the way they sort of function. I mean, it's perfect for design thinking because he's trying to describe something that's changing on him as he goes and he seems to be able to reflect that mm. you got to show that so that 400 years later we can still you know you can go to and go to Stratford and see the forest of Arden and go oh, yeah that's that's confusing falling in love and um there's Rosalind who's you know 
brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. If we look at a, drawing a deeper link between empathy plays, Shakespeare's understanding of the world, and design thinking, the concept of co-design was the process that you described where you get all the best ideas and you use yourself as a sieve. So with co-design, you get everybody, everyone, everyone talks, everyone's voice is equal to input. But then you have a process to have expert level practitioners draw the best ideas or theses out or the best questions to be answered is really what you're doing. So here's the best question. Now let's embark on a journey of finding the best answer which we like to say is a solution however as soon as we come to that solution we just get another question that needs to be answered yes yeah, yeah. isn't that great isn't that yeah. great? i mean that's that's why that's why you that's where the curiosity comes in i think that's right because the because the process when you're particularly working with shakespeare is about working out what the questions are because there's mm-hmm. a lot of questions there's mm-hmm. a lot of questions and you need to try and refine them and work out what they are. So the, 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 the more diverse your group is that's in there asking those questions and trying to unpick them, whether that's to do with the plot or to do with character or to do with relationships. Mm. And there's a whole series of processes that we go through to try and get clarity on that. That's really, really you're trying to find clarity because w- without knowing what that question is, the whole production can go off on the wrong thing. Um, that's right. If you've, the, if you've asked the wrong question, and we do say that quite a bit, so like I think that's the wrong question. Mm. Another question that we need to be asking in this, and and that's also to do with time and space, because I'm lucky because I've I've been doing this for a long time. Is that when I do a, when I did a play 15 years ago, it was a completely different play to what it is now, because right. not because the plays changed, but I've changed. Yeah. And my relationship to it's changed, and my experience with it's changed, and that and that's one of the wonderful things about working with Shakespeare is that you sort of measure your life against it. Mm. It's fascinating to see the same words on this page, but somehow it's changed. And and I think that's why also audiences are able to go back and see the same play, you know, every ten years and and find something new in it. Definitely. This is a very short story, but it's I think it scopes out some of the problems that people have with understanding and using empathy. I was speaking to a consultant who was in involved in a project with one of the major four banks. That's probably enough said. <laughs> and he walks into the boardroom and the the topic was connecting better with one particular type of customer. And so their solution was we'll get a cardboard cutout of this archetype of this individual and put that in the boardroom to help inspire empathy <laughs> you wouldn't believe it would you if you put it in a, no. doc, in a mockumentary people would go yeah that's not a real thing <laughs> but it's real it's really happened and wow. yeah and so i'm listening to this guy and he's not defending it he's absolutely not defending what happened because yeah. he thought it was absolutely ludicrous but yeah. you know this is the deficit of that we're operating at to understand how to use things as use empathy as a real tool a real space to explore yeah and and you as an actor as an artistic director as a director Mm. of many things would have you just said that you do have some processes 
did any process come to mind when I was saying that the cardboard yeah. cut out? Did something pop in your head like, that's yeah. not where I would start? No. Well, because also the physical is incredibly deceptive. Okay, so here's an, here's an example. This is a really simple exercise. Really early on in the process, one thing an actor can do is that they can go through the script. And I can imagine this you could do this in any sort of research topic. And they write down everything that a character says about themselves. Just a list. Mm. Just a list about this that I'm, you know, I'm, uh, and it could be physical, it could be emotional, but anything that they say about themselves, that's one. Then they go through the script again. It's important that you attack it as separate process, separate activities. The second bit is that you go through and you write down everything that your character says about everyone else. And it's mm. a list. And then you go through a third time and you write down everything that other people say about you. And so what you end up with is these three things that are full of contradictions and, and they set up questions. Which one's true? Which bits are true? Which bits can I use? What, what, is, what does this say about my relationship with this person or this person, this person? So as a process, it's very practical. It's very concrete. You end up with an awful lot of information mm. that's quite blunt that then leads to a whole series of questions. And so what you're talking about is character, I guess. Mm. You're just trying to build character, but in a really, really complex way that has very little to do. Well, sometimes you might work out what you look like, what you should look like in it, mm. but even that can be contradictory, the way people describe you and the way you describe yourself. So, for example, Helena in Midsummer Night's Dream describes herself as ugly as a bear, but everybody else perceives that her, her and Hermia look pretty similar, mm. slightly taller. We know that because... She teases Hermia about being short. But otherwise, they're the same. But Helena's perception, Helena's insecurities about herself physically, because the boys like the other girl, says volumes about how who she is and or who she is at this time. Mm. But you find it through the contradictions. Mm. Well, I don't know what your bank would do, but I'm sure if you were trying to investigate what this what what this um, particular customer is, there's a lot of questions you could ask about why, what they see about themselves or what they you know what, how other people perceive them, et cetera, et cetera, where you could build something. Yeah, and so you wouldn't want to, for example, send out a questionnaire to people and ask them to answer <laughs> tick box <laughs> questions, right? Yeah, I wouldn't think so. No, I mean you'd want to have conversations mm -hmm. with them and and really deeply listen to and connect with their language. Yeah, I think so. I mm. think so, and, and and be and be really curious about that. What it is that they feel about themselves, or feel about what their aspirations and ambitions are, or the place that they take in the world. I would have thought that would be really interesting. Mm. I mean, that's what a social conversation is. I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we do, don't we? Most of yeah. us, like we're we're constantly building up pictures of people <laughs> in conversation and trying yeah. to work out where they sit and where they sit in relation to me. And I don't think we like to admit it, but we get it wrong a lot. Yes, we do. And I think that's part of it. I think that's a part of the sort of wisdom is finding some kind of wisdom is to not lock down on anything, to be able to see things are in flux and things are shifting from situation to situation and, and having some acceptance over that. Things are only true for a moment. That's right. So I don't know what, I don't work in, in that business. I don't know what that means when you're trying to sell them something. I'm looking for the complexities. Mm. I'm not really not trying to lock that, lock that down. 
I think that part of the the failure of a lot of marketing is that there is no nuance and there is no acceptance of deeper exploration. So you you know everybody wants to come to a place and they're like this is this is the message. This is the thing we're going to say. And this is what this person wants to hear. And then everyone can say, yes, great. So we've ticked all these boxes. Now we can move on to something else. But if you change your perspective in that this is something that we can say now Mm. until we get better information and then we can change it. I mean, just as you're talking, it occurs to me that part of the empathy thing is also linked to to acceptance. Uh, Understanding a person's situation, to have empathy is to understand somebody's situation or where they they find themselves or reasons for why they might be thinking and saying what they are and and having some kind of, not always acceptance, I guess, but but, but certainly being, being curious enough to try and understand that trying to understand what their position is. Never thought about character in the way that you're asking about characters. <laughs> really interesting to me. It's something that I, that I come up against a lot in what I, what I do is I develop narratives for people, so businesses, organizations, even projects. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? Where are we going with this? And so you collect a bunch of stories and then you find the common themes within the story and that becomes the narrative, the theme that we're chasing. And that process basically gives them an unresolvable future, a a place that will never, you'll never get there because the future is imaginary. Yeah. It's only now. Yeah. (laughs) So we're only really now, but, but we're also constantly always understanding how to keep moving in the direction we want to go. So it's giving you an open-ended place to explore, essentially. I directly link that process that I use to being a seven-year-old and being in school plays. And, you know, I, I think, I mean, I acted pretty solidly up until the age of 25. So like right. seven to 25, you know. Right. I was serial. I'd go from show to show to show to show to... <laughs> cool. Everything. What, have, what and, happened at twenty five? Do you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. So I moved to uh, I moved to Australia, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. started studying photography and filmmaking. And I start I went on the other side of the camera, and also found it difficult that I can't really do an Australian accent, <laughs> and That's there weren't many. Yeah, no, I can't either. It's so pretty. hard. <laughs> so it kind of it yeah. kind of ended a lot of things. So. Yeah, so occasionally I'll play an American for someone. Like, oh, we need an American. I'm like, okay, but you know, yeah. I'll do that. I mean, it is because one of the one of the other exercises we do on the first day is that we sit down with a massive whiteboard. I mean, this is again, we're sort of in the opposite. You're building the story, whereas we're trying to unpack. The, we're trying to unpack the story. Yeah, so we sort of sit around, and, and the actors tend to be very. They're always they are curious as a as a you know as a generalization of my actors they're curious and they tend to be pretty broad pretty well read and mm-hmm. we sit around with a whiteboard and I ask them what the play's about there'd be a hundred words up there twenty mm-hmm. minutes later which is pretty interesting <laughs> it's about a lot of things and I, and I think sometimes people think about Shakespeare and in purely academic terms where it's about trying to define something. But when you mm. work in a theatre, it's not about that. Yes, you need some clarity, but it can also be about a lot of things. And that can keep changing. It can keep shifting in the play. So I was watching a, 
a run of much to do about nothing yesterday and this is a you know quintessential shakespeare comedy where at the center of it it's a, tra- it's a tragedy and there's a there's a there's a really nasty scene right in the center of it that if you do it right it's just pure tragedy and is, and is deeply sad. But what Shakespeare understands is you can do that and then the next scene, the clowns come on and it's completely ridiculous. We don't make a lot of work like this anymore, but the audience can hold those two things. They can take, they can take the tonal shift and they can hold those ideas together. Um, and so the experience by the end of it is a full meal. Like it's a full sort of experience because emotionally you've been you've been kind of backwards and forwards between laughter and feeling quite wrung out by 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 it. So the play's not about one thing; it's about lots of things. It's probably it, it, you need to, you need absolute clarity in the moment, as you were saying before. Like from moment to moment, the actors have very clear actions, and and acting's built around verbs, and you need to be really clear about what your what your actions are. But the cumulative effect, I think, is much, much more complicated. Mm. And you're basically like creating snapshots of moments and mm. then the audience is creating the meaning at their level, wherever they're at, yep. within that experience. And then you come at it at the end and you know you're successful if people argue about mm-hmm. what things meant. Yes, Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. If, there, if there's some kind of discussion about what that cumulative um, experience was, then it's, it's pretty interesting. And that's yeah. what they should be. That's why, that's why they exist in a society. That's what they're, they're for. They're not in stopped. They're there for to live on. You know, it's yes. that, that time and space. And I think particularly, you know, the origins of theatre was certain Western theatre. We mm. think about think about the Greeks. So there's much of the, you know, they, they seem to experience them more like some kind of ceremony. There's a communal experience to come and deal with some very, very difficult subject matter. And that was part of what being in a society is. And then mm. James Shapiro um, is a fantastic Shakespeare critic, likes to talk about it. You know, the birth of theatre is exactly happened with the birth of democracy. The two right. things are, complete, are completely linked. And that if you want to have a, you know, a fully functioning society, then you need these avenues for the kind of collectively to talk about things. If we look at what's happening culturally around the world at the moment, let's say in, in, in Western mm. civilization, there's a, there's a lot of polarizing of I'm sitting on this side of this subject or this topic and you're sitting on this other side and we can't agree because there's a lot of space in between where we sit, right? So mm. this is happening all over the world. And so people are becoming ultra conservative or maybe ultra mm liberal or and neither one of them are actually solving problems they're just wasting time Mm -hmm. and arguing amongst themselves and meanwhile all the things they're arguing about aren't getting better just progressively moving forward Mm. at the pace of the rate of whatever that thing might be whether it's climate change or poverty or Mm. whatever there's so many things but if we all had a better understanding of empathy and stop focusing on the ego, the me, the I, the hero. Mm. The hero is a dangerous concept. Mm. And more about us, that's intrinsically linked to empathy, isn't it? 
Yeah. What you're saying about the hero, I think it's exactly right, is that if your society is celebrating the individual and asking us to be constantly defining ourselves as an individual and not part of the collective, then it does breed this sort of tribal and polarisation. And Shakespeare explores them very clearly, particularly in his Roman plays, mm-hmm. is that as, as the Roman Republic moves into empire, the society focuses less on the collective as a political entity and more on the individual. And so by the time we get to the to the emperor, the society is encouraged to be distracted. Uh, as the, we are now. Yes, we exactly. we are a distracted group of people. Yeah. That's right. And the history of Rome and, and what Shakespeare is interested in Rome is is pretty similar, is the buy-in of the early republic is almost total. Obviously, again, it's not what we understand as a democratic thing because only a certain amount of people can participate. But that that participation is encouraged, and then as as we go through, it's discouraged, and it corresponds to the sense of empire because the the world becomes so big, and so then once it gets that you know that that kind of that kind of scale, then in fact we're ending up with. I mean, the, the Romans' greatest fear was ending up with a king, but they just changed the name. They ended up with a king. They just called it the emperor, and they, you know, off they went. And it feels to me when I'm when I'm looking at those plays, there's an awful lot to be said about where we are in terms of dividing people and focusing on self-interest rather than on the collective. And the problems you're describing, I think, are. Absolutely, you need a lot of buy-in from a lot of people to solve those kinds of problems. But they are solvable, but it feels like we're getting more and more fractured and it's more and more. I think about what's happening in the UK as a quintessential, we define ourselves as this, so we just want to separate and be this. You know, after all those Mm -hmm. years of trying to get some kind of cohesion or some kind of collective buy-in to solve some of these bigger problems, we're going the opposite direction at the moment. And yes, I guess that's about empathy. It's wanting to understand what somebody, where somebody else is coming from. I feel quite pessimistic though about it. I have to say because the machines that are the machines that are set up to keep us separated are pretty powerful. Yeah, they're working very well. They're, they're working really well and have some vested yeah. interests in keeping it like that. I think. Yeah, hundred percent. That's why you know when when the world's in trouble, they need the artists. They need the artists. Like the art, the artists are the people who are the become the mirrors. And just as Shakespeare became the mirror of what he saw, one one of the things that John mentioned was that he was a great observer. He really listened to people and he got the language of that type of person or that type of community. Yeah. He's able to reflect it very accurately. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. He was clearly had an amazing ear and an amazing memory because he clearly remembers everything he's seen or heard or read and is able to call on that again. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, but as you say it, I think about all of all the times in history and all the places around the world where the artists they get killed. there's lots of there's lots of regimes who you know identify what you're saying and going i don't want a mirror running around here we're going to take people out 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, it is interesting at the moment just in terms of mass arts, if you think about the amount of television that's around and the amount of, like, what a huge influence that's having on us and our, on our conversations. Mm. The international breadth of the television that's happening at the moment is quite incredible. Like, it is. So much stuff. And it so dominates a lot of what we talk about. And, you know, a lot of that is very good art. Because my, my issue is that good art is about complexities and it's about the grey areas, whereas the kind of politics that we're talking about is not about complexity. It's about binary choices and it's about trying to sell an idea that this is very simple you know, something as simple as when in fact it's complex and, and that's why you need buy-in from a community because you you have to be interested in investigating what someone's saying quite deeply uh, in order to feel okay. Whereas, again, for our own stability, we seem to want things to be just clear-cut, just explain it to me, that's simple and that's done. Whereas, as I say, that a lot of the, the television being I know is very, very complex and very, very interesting and mm. people seem to be watching hours and hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Game of Thrones. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of really classic components. A lot of, of, lot of Shakespeare in there. A lot of Shakespeare in there. A lot, yep. And it, yeah. and it's it's interesting because I've had conversations with people and they're like, ah, not really into Shakespeare. And I'm like, do you like Game of Thrones? They're like, love it. I'm like, you're into Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone's, someone's just repackaged it for you in a, in a, in a different yeah. way. Yeah complex characters who don't get what they want, who sometimes get what they need or what they deserve, and it's not resolved. And it will never be resolved because that's not how life works. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and bad things happen to good people. Yes. <laughs> it's to be the message for Game of Thrones. It's like, oh, okay, don't get too attached because they're yeah. not going to be around next week. That's right. And good people can become bad. Certainly, certainly. Didn't people get upset about that in the end? Daenerys, yeah. People yeah, really people were really like upset that. about that. I was like, yeah, that makes sense to me. What have we been watching? Just because they've been, just because she's been slaughtering baddies, doesn't mean that she hasn't been slaughtering people. I was kind no. of, I was, like, I was cool. I was cool with it. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it did to me as well. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm putting that together. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I totally I thought really see interesting. that. I thought that was really interesting because, again, something Shakespeare's interested in is the way you can, the way a, a soul can be corrupted. Yeah. And 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 I think she's sort of amazing because it's about power, and it starts off as about power for good and and uniting mm. the world. But the manner in which you do it, and this is this is the central thesis of Julius Caesar, is mm. that what the conspirators are trying to do is they're worried that they, that Julius Caesar is going to become a tyrant, and so they want to make a preemptive strike. You know, their motivations are actually for the good of Rome, but then they slaughter him in the Senate House. So the way in which they achieve their ends is going to be their downfall, you know, to live by the yeah. sword, die by the sword thing, is that, the, is that it's very easy for Mark Antony to influence the people of Rome by going, look, look what they did to his body. Like, are these people really after Rome? Like, they slaughtered him. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really, that's really interesting. I mean, and when, you know, we see, we see that the idea of the preemptive strike, you know, what the, what the Americans were particularly trying to do in Iraq is really, really similar. It's like, you're not going to get buy-in from this, from this part of the world if, if no. you go through these things. And it's sort of predictable. You work in a Shakespeare, a lot of this stuff, some of this stuff is pretty clear what's going to happen, you know. Yeah. 
and and obviously it's based on history you know if you read the history we we can see the lessons that we seem to just refuse to learn yeah it's very fascinating and the people who learn the lessons if they're amplified in the right way become very famous right (laughs) so you know if, if you think of like Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Mother Teresa, there a lot of the messaging was very similar, but they were able to harness and and deliver in in the way it needed to be delivered, and it was breaking the cycle. They helped great, to break some of the cycle. Great, great use of language. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Mm. You know, good use of rhetoric, and you know, a couple of those examples are, are specifically about actions as well. But certainly, great stories. Yeah, I I have a dream. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's certainly certainly anything that we have to do, and certainly in my job, a lot of that is about creating the story and getting people to buy into that story or be inspired by that story in order to come on the journey. I think that's probably pretty important in any business. Oh, it, it's very important, and people are starting to wake up. Like, there's a lot of talk about storytelling, mm. but, you know, you've got people who are very interested but have no previous knowledge or training you know, it's it's a it's a lifelong journey, and it's not something you can take a couple of courses, mm. and all of a sudden you have this deep knowledge. It is a, as you say, it's a vocation. It's lifelong, and it's a unending quest. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. I would say though that one of the keys to it, and I certainly when I'm talking to young directors about this, it's also about finding your own voice. Mm is that we can actually, around the dinner table, most of us tell a pretty good story about something that happened to us. Yeah. Because it's personal. Because we're personal and it happened to us and that we're, if we're comfortable with the friends that we're with or the family that we're with, we're able to tell that story. And well, it's exactly the same. Is that I mean, you've got to find out what it is, what is your authentic voice in telling this particular story that may not be personal. It might be somebody else's story that you have a passion to want to present or Mm. want to sell in some way, but you still got to filter that through your own voice because I think that authenticity is very attractive and that people can tell, oh, well, you're clearly passionate about this or clearly excited about this. I want to be on that journey as well. So I do think sometimes people can make a mistake when you talk about courses, et cetera, of trying to mimic somebody else when in fact, it's got to be you, yeah. your voice, and answering the question for why you want to do this particular thing is incredibly important because if you can't answer that, then you're not going to get anyone else coming along with you. No, that's, that's absolutely right. If you had a, f- a final message about Shakespeare that you would love to impart, it doesn't have to be anything about business or you know, just something that you've learned that you'd love to share about Shakespeare's work as influence? I don't think there is one thing because, and this links back to what we've been talking about because it keeps shifting on me. Yeah. It keeps shifting on me from day to day and the things, so so someone else saying, you know, well, you know, what's your favourite play? And it's like, well, it depends what day it is and it depends what I'm working on or where I am and that's part of the joy of it and, and what makes me curious about it is that it keeps shifting on me and that there are mm. different things that I look into and, and that is about the complexities and the ambiguities inside the work but also the deep curiosity of the writer and, in, you know, to your sort of overarching point, the sort of deeply empathetic mind at work that what I was talking about, you know, it's not that he's 
even when he's optimistic, he's not naive, but he's also not cynical. There's a deep, deep humanity, and I mean humanity in a good sense, in a deep sense of wanting to forgive. And in fact, the journey of the plays uh, over his career, he becomes obsessed with forgiveness in the in the last few years of his life mm. and, and what it is to forgive and, and what the dignity is, you know, how to find dignity in forgiving somebody is, I think, there's some very beautiful ideas in there that are not, they're not airy-fairy and they're not naive. They are deeply felt and enriching. I think that's the thing. The work mm. I find enriching. What do you think his message about forgiveness is? Because I think the world needs yeah. that now. Well, the, the, first part of, the first part of the career is about cycles of violence. That, that, I mean, you can break down Shakespeare's writing career in all sorts of different categories, mm. but one of the ways you can do it is that you can look at the early history plays and look at the early tragedies, and they're about cycles of violence, mm. unending, and they're about revenge and they're about retribution. And, and the complexities of revenge. And then you get into the middle of the career and he's suddenly looking and going, so what is revenge if you're a Christian and that you and that you don't you don't believe in that? Or what happens when you take the law into your own hands? What happens to the society? Mm. And then the later part of the thing is he's actually looking at what are the difficulties and, and the costs of forgiveness, but also what are the benefits, because there is no other way. At some point in the conflict, somebody has to forgive somebody for past behaviours in mm. order for us to move forward. Otherwise, we're just still in a cycle. And I think it is to do. I think you can look at it and see that politically he's trying to work out how do you break out of cycles. And that's pretty powerful, I think, because somebody has to be big enough to actually forgive. Yeah, for the greater good. I think so. Yeah. It's one of the places he arrives at. I think it's, mm. it's very beautiful. Thanks, Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. I feel really great about this interview. Thank you so much for your time. Lovely talking to you. You too. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my guests on this episode. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Curious about how the power of narrative could work for you? Check out my business website, www.spendloveandlamb.com. That's www.spendloveandlamb.com.